This morning's scripture reading will be taken from Psalms chapter 42, verses 1 through 11. And starting at verse 1, it reads, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where's your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This is God's word. You may be seated. Please keep your Bibles open to Psalm 42. Let's begin with, uh, with prayer as we press our mind into this text. <clears throat> Father, in good days and hard days, in days of mountaintops and days of low places, when we know where we are on the map, and on those days where we don't and we feel lost, we are confident. And on those days when we want to bury our heads in the sand, we know you are beside us always and faithfully and loyally and lovingly as a shield around us, as a rock beneath our feet, you are with us. And Father, we hold on to this truth when we worship you in the beauty of your glory and when we thirst for you and come to dry rocks and sand. We acknowledge our need in this life for this psalm and for your help and strength and presence to live its truth. So we ask you in the name of Jesus, Father, to bless us with ears to hear and eyes to see to discern and embrace this wisdom for life. This we ask, Father, with all of our heart in the name of Jesus and all the church said. You know, if you've been around Mac for very long, you know that uh, one of the authors that we like to read is C.S. Lewis. And uh, there is uh, a lot of, uh, of great teaching and understanding about God and 
and the Word of God that can come to us from the hands of Dr. Lewis. Uh, a book he wrote about the problem of pain, the problem being how do you, how do you explain the presence of God in the presence of pain. Uh, toward the end of that book, he wrote something that uh, I think about a lot. When I think about how we interact with each other and all of the different opportunities and circumstances in situations that arise in our lives and the way that we interact with each other, he wrote towards the end of the book, The Problem of Pain, these words. It's up here on the screen. Mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common and also hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden of it. It is easier to say, my tooth is aching, than to say, my heart is breaking. During the last couple of weeks, months, members of our own church family have experienced betrayal and loneliness and disappointment and disease and threat and anxiety, profound bewilderment, some level of anger, of hatred and of anguish, anguish and weariness. And as, as your minister, I, I want to say to you, if you're one of those folk in the pew this morning or down, you know, at, at home live streaming us and, and listening to this this morning, I want to say to you as your minister that as a disciple of Jesus, there are times when it's okay not to be okay. That as a church family, we want to acknowledge those moments of joy and rejoice with those that are rejoicing. But it's also okay as a church family living in a world like this to weep with those that weep. As a disciple of Jesus, there are times when it's okay not to be okay. Life is not static. It moves up and down and down and up. And there are days when you're going to get a case of the ordinaries. And this is why we have the Psalms, one of the blessings of the Psalms in our Bible. Uh, Dallas Willard once said, and it drives me a little bit nuts because I can't remember where he said this, but he said something along these lines about the Psalms. He said, if you want to know about the nature of God, the nature of life, and learn some things about the nature of faith, then read the Psalms. I agree wholeheartedly with that. A little bit more to the point is a fellow by the name of Walter Brueggemann who said, you know, he said basically the same thing, but he said three things about the Psalms. He said, number one, the Psalms are about real experiences of life. I mean, you read the Psalms of David, and this is a guy that not only is wise and smart and holy and a guy with power, but he's a guy that's emotional. And there are times when he wants God to break the teeth of the person that's hurting him. And then there are some of the most beautiful psalms in the world of worship written by David. The, the psalms are about real life experiences, but number two, those life experiences are a mixture of joy and hurt. And most importantly, number three, the psalms talk to God unapol uh, unapologetically uncompromisingly and unembarrassingly about both of these experiences in life. 
David and Asaph and the sons of Korah and all of the other, Solomon, who wrote the Psalms, wrote unflinchingly about, with honesty about their experiences of life, good or bad, light or dark, heavy or light, unflinchingly, promise, um, uncompromisingly to God and truthfully. Now my question for our church family this morning is this. Is there a place in our theology... Is there a, a place in our understanding of faith? Is there a, a place in our worship practices for those experiences to be acknowledged unapologetically and uncompromisingly and unembarrassingly? Or are we the kind of church that just pushes them those, those bad experiences those, those valley experiences to some obscure and hidden corner of our religious belief system and practices. If we are really a people formed by God's book, then the Psalms would teach us not to romanticize our faith or, 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 or somehow think that by gauging, you know, the way that we gauge our faith is that when things are good, then everything is great with God, and when things are bad, then things are not great with God. But to force us to be realistic and to recognize that there are days that are anything but just really sweet and lightness. That there are going to be days when the thing that really makes mo more sense than anything else is when you get out of the car to drop down on the driveway and, and cry. That there will be days when inexplicably God does not feel close. I call those a case of the ordinaries. And believe it or not, there, there are days when I wake up or there are days in the middle of the week where I come to work or I'm going about the business of even being a minister. And you just have a case of the ordinaries. It doesn't feel like God is, is, is far away or close. It just feels ordinary. As a disciple of Jesus, there are times when it's okay not to be okay. And Psalm 42 helps us with this, especially in light of the temptation on those kinds of days when we will lose our composure or begin to be fearful or somehow lose our, our, our buoyancy in life and lose our poise. And so in Psalm 42, we're going to see three things. There are a ton of things. We're going to single out three. A grief, sources, and a path we see in the psalm. A, a grief of absence, the sources of spiritual barrenness, and the path for restoration. A couple of things, actually two things first about this psalm. You'll, you'll notice that Psalm 42 and 43 are very similar. There's probably substantial I think probably it's true evidence that uh, Psalm 42, verses 1 through 11, Psalm 43, verses 1 and 5, were all at one point one psalm. If you read Psalm 43, you'll, you'll get, the meaning that, um, uh, get the meaning of how these two are, are connected to each other. The language is the same. But then secondly, this psalm was not written by David. It was written by an anonymous son of Korah, a regular Joe like you and me, not some king, not some famous individual. We don't even name the, know the name of this fella, this anonymous son of Korah, who begins to struggle with the grief of absence. Drought is a reality of life. 
And we know this to be true because of our life in South Texas. The rain does not always come and does not always come for a long time and replenish the soil and refresh it and refresh us. This last Wednesday night, I'm talking to Alan Babcock, who had a phone call with uh, his sister-in-law, Judy, up in Amarillo, who told him this last week that Amarillo, that area around Amarillo, has not had rain in 390 days. It's more than that now. A year, how many days in a year? 365, 390 bigger than 365. Yeah, more than a year without rain. This past week, uh, Ella and I were on vacation. We were in New Mexico. We were in the Santa Fe National Forest. Specifically spent some time in the Pecos River Valley. On Thursday of this last week, the day before they shut down the Santa Fe National Forest and those millions of acres on Friday. And as we were leaving Santa Fe to head back to San Antonio, uh, we, had, we had seen sort of the spooky dryness of that forest and of the Pecos River Valley and knew for sure that that was something that they needed to do. But we were kind of stunned. Even we didn't realize how dry it was in that forest. A commentator talking about the closing of that forest said, you know, here's the deal. You go to Lowe's or you go to Home Depot and you buy a 2x4, that 2x4 is going to have about 12% moisture. The forest in and around Santa Fe, 3% is dry. But there's another kind of dryness, another kind of drought that human beings experience, especially folks like us that, that are followers of Jesus of Nazareth. Psalm 42, verse 1, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. A hunter once told me that the number one goal of a deer is don't get shot. Now, to put it a little less crassly, the number one rule for deer is to survive. And these animals are completely tuned into their surroundings. They know where the food and the water is located. And in this psalm, it begins with a metaphor. The animal that is dying of thirst, this deer, or if you're reading some of the older versions like the King Jimmy, it's a hind. But it's a deer dying of thirst comes to a stream looking for water looking for refreshment, and the stream is dry. Now the Hebrew word arag has a little bit more gravitas to it than just panting. The idea, in, in, in fact some of these older translations puts it this way, this animal is not just panting, this animal is crying out in desperation for water because the shudder of death is breathing nearby. This deer needs something desperately suffering, needs relief desperately, and not getting that relief, not being close to that, that stream of refreshment is dreadful. Now this thirsty, disappointed deer does not stop believing in water just because there's no water there, but the experiences of the absence of water become even more excruciating. This deer is in a desolate, barren, and dry place. In this metaphor, the son of Korah, whoever he is, is the thirsty deer and God is the dry riverbed. He still believes in God, but is suffering the absence of God. He's grieving the absence of God. He is sensing that God's presence is not there and he's suffering because of it. 
And all the things that we take for granted when we talk about relationships is not there. The give and take, the conversation, the question and the answer, the touch, the feeling the closest, the feeling the intimacy, sharing of sin, all of that. Whatever we, we take for granted in relationships, all of that has been swept off the table. This relationship that Korah has, or the son of Korah has with God, this, these things are all missing. And because they're missing, three times in the psalm, he says, my soul is downcast. He says in verse 2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I what? Go. Where can I go? Where can I find and meet with God? But very importantly, notice in this psalm that he doesn't, God's not there, so I no longer believe in God. Throughout the psalm, it's my God, my God. He can continually refers to God in a relational sense. He's my God. He is the God of my life. This man has lost contact with the very relationship that has formed the ground under his feet and given him a buoyancy and given him a poise in life. And now it's not there and it's a severe grief. And as we have said many, many, many times before, church, grief is not about where a loved one is. It's about where they're not. And he says in verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? Instead of eating, he's weeping. There's no appetite. He's so full of grief. His mind so full of this, this grief from the absence of God that he's not sleeping but lying awake all night. Do you know what that's like? The son of Korah is in pain. He says in verse 10, my bones suffer mortal agony. Mitchell Dahud, one of the commentators on the Psalms, translates this verse as there is an assassin within my bones. You know the song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. There's a fountain filled uh, with blood from Emmanuel's vein. Written by, we pronounce his name Cowper a lot. I think it's probably more Cooper. But a fellow by the name of William Cooper wrote a lot of the hymns that we sing. In 1772, he wrote another song with the title, Oh, for a Closer Walk with God. Not to be confused with A Closer Walk with Thee. But it's found on page 670 in our hymnal. And the second line William Cooper writes these words. Where is the blessedness I knew when I first saw the Lord? Where's the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and His Word? What William Cooper is writing about is that same moment in life, the experience of the absence of God that the son of Korah is experiencing. So the question for us right now is, how did the son of Korah lose the presence of God? It's a pretty important question, don't you think? So the sources of spiritual barrenness, what are they? Now, sometimes the Psalms speak to the problem of the absence of God as the result of sin. 
Psalm 51, you know, David is begging God not to cast him out of his presence, to restore him to his presence. And, and most of the time, this is the route we take when we come to this moment in life where we sense the absence of God. We assume that God is not around because there's a problem. We assume that he's there and we feel the joy and the power of his presence when things are great. But when we don't feel that, then there's got to be something that we've done that's made him angry. But that's not the case in Psalm 42. There's no sin being confessed. So where did the spiritual barrenness come from? Possibly came from isolation. He found himself away from his people. The sons of Korah in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, they're temple musicians. They were located in and around Jerusalem. But then we read this in verse 6. I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, and from Mount Mizar. These are, are references to the northern part of, of the country. He's located in the south, but now he's become isolated from that community in the south, and somehow he's finding himself up in the north for some reason, and he has lost his community, and loneliness is beginning to overtake him. Those who have lived with loneliness teach us something about that. We never underestimate the debilitating power of loneliness and isolation. And he gets nostalgic. He says, I used to go to the house under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. It could possibly be disillusionment. He says in verse 9, I'm saying to God, to his face, to God my rock. Why have you forsaken me? Have you forgotten me? Or possibly it's people pressure, the ones around him are creating this, this, this sense that God is not near him. In verse 9 he talks about being oppressed by an enemy. and In verse 10 there are foes that are taunting him and mocking him. And maybe it's a combination of all three. But what's clear is that this son of Korah has burned every bridge leading out of that barrenness that is not God. There are no other ways to deal with this barrenness that's not God. And so he concludes with a couple of paths to res restoration. The first is we reveal. He says, I, I pour out my soul. Verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul to God. You know, sometimes we think that, that uh, talking to God is like talking to a high school, you know, some kind of a school principal or a librarian. You use your best English and you tell them things that they, you know, that they want to hear. You never tell them anything they don't want to hear. That's not the relationship that's most intimate that any of us have ever experienced, is it? There, there is something profound about being in relationship with a person who knows all our secrets. And so pouring out the soul is not talking about the weather. He's saying to God, God, where are you? During the day, I'm not eating anything because what I need is you. And at night, I can't get any rest 
because the only rest that I need is found in you. Where are you, God? I'm not getting anything out of this. Be honest. And I need your presence. I need your help. So this son of Korah helps us to understand that when we come to these moments in, in our, our walk with God where he, it feels barren, we pour out our soul to God in honesty to him. But then number two, we have to remember. And I think that this is where the psalm progresses in a more positive direction. In verse 6 he says, My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, that becomes the trigger, I'm going to remember you. The son of Korah is deliberately choosing to think about something. I'm going to remember. I'm going to remember. My soul's downcast, so I'm going to remember some things about God. What is it? Verse 8, he says, By day the Lord directs his love. That is the word chesed. The word for love, unfailing, completely loyal. That kind of love that only describes God. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. This is an incredibly important thing to do. Is to remember. In reading about this psalm, uh, I was surprised to read two men. Uh, one of them, uh, uh, John Piper. The other one, Mark Maynell. One you may have heard of. The other one I had not heard of until the study of this psalm. But they used... In writing about this psalm, they use the same expression. This anonymous son of Korah, who is experiencing a downcast soul, is remembering, which means that he's thinking about something specific about God. That's his love. And what he begins to do, and this is the terminology they used, this son of Korah is preaching to himself. He's preaching to himself. The spiritual barrenness can obscure the reality and the goodness of God. And he has somehow learned to preach to himself the goodness of God. You know, I, I, playing football for all of those years, you, you'd get into the huddle, and there were times when maybe you weren't doing your assignment, and you had somebody on the field, a captain or a, a defensive captain or offensive captain who would tell you, hey, you got to do this and you got to do this and you got to do that. And he's kind of preaching to you there in the middle of the huddle. You got to take care of business. Or maybe you are the captain and sometimes I had to say to a guy, you know what? You need to fill that gap better than what you're doing or we're going to lose this game. You always had somebody to preach to you. But when you're wrestling, that was something different. You're out there by yourself on that mat with that opponent. And that, that uh, gymnasium is filled with so many people, you can't hear what the coach says. I tell my mother, I said, out of all of the, the voices that were screaming and screaming and screaming, I could only hear yours. And quite frankly, she was, she was quite happy with that. But there were times because you had the headgear on and you're out there and it's so loud and these kinds of things are going, that you have to learn how to say to yourself, you got to get in gear. You, you're down by a point and there's 30 seconds left and you got to get going. You got to do this and you got to do that. And this is what the son of Korah is doing spiritually. He realizes that he is down, but he's not remembering his emotions, but the facts that form the foundation of his faith. He's reminding himself 
of Scripture and the past experiences of God where that love broke through dark clouds like a sunbeam and transformed him and changed him. And that's what we have to do as well. We have to not only reveal and pour out, God, I'm not getting anything out of this, but I will remember that this is the kind of God that you are, that your love is unfailing. And the last thing he does is relocate his hope. He says in verse 5 and verse 11, and if you take 43 to be a part of the psalm, he says it again in verse 5, put your hope in where? God. For I will yet, which means I am confident that I will praise him, my Savior and my God. What is the number one rule in real estate, church? Let's say it together. Location, location, location. There is a vagueness to this psalm about where exactly the source of the spiritual barrenness is coming from. But something has not lived up to the billing. Something has disappointed him and frustrated him. Something has let him down. And he remembers when it comes to hope. Location, location, location. He is relocating his hope back in God. He is affirming that his hope is in God. In verse 5, in verse 11, he reaffirms it. My hope is is in God, and I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Which means that we do the same thing. When we come to these moments where it just feels like God is far away, we don't give up on God and say, God, you're not there, so you know I'm giving up on you, and I'm moving on. No. We pour out our soul, and we say, I'm not getting anything out of this. I, I need your help. I need your presence. Help me to move forward in this. And we remember, we preach to ourselves about the chesed, the love, the unfailing love of God, and all the experiences of, of God in our life, and then we relocate our hope. And we remember that the one that we relocate our hope in one time said, I thirst. I thirst. Who felt a complete forsakenness of God. And who took the taunts and the mocking of the passerbys and the ones who were passing by him in order to break through all of that and to be in the presence of God forever and ever. And in that way, he opened it up for us. Our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. And this is an opportunity, if, if the prayers of the congregation for your relationship with God, for, for this, this feeling of, of barrenness, of dryness in your life, if the prayers of the congregation are something that you need and that makes sense, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front for you to talk to them about that. Or it might be an opportunity for you to leave the dryness of a life without God forever and ever and to come into the relationship that is eternal with God forever and ever as your Father and Christ as your Savior and the Spirit in you as a guide. Whatever the case may be, our church is here to, to minister to you. 
And we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together. I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me, how he left his home.